before we think about them together. But let me pray as we start. Thank you for this tangible expression of your goodness, the Bible that we have in our hands, almighty God. Thank you that you inspired its words, that they are flawless, just as you are flawless. And thank you that you work in us and in our lives through them so that we can know you and love you and become more like you. And we would pray for the work of your spirit in us that we might be transformed by you and by our knowledge of you this evening. Help us to grow in confidence in who you are and help us to grow in trust in your good purposes for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read then Exodus chapter 2. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him from a basket made of bulrushes, uh, for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father rule, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died 
And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry of rescue for, for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. You'll keep chapters one and two open in front of you as an outline. Um, <clears throat> the only thing on your sheet, apart from the table, that will be a help to you, I think. Now, um, the book of Exodus that we're starting tonight, we're going to spend uh, the next few months thinking about the first half of, at least, is a, it sort of portrays a story that is so dramatic that Hollywood has not been able to get enough of it. Depending on your age, you will remember either Cecil B. DeMille's um, epic, The Ten Commandments, or... Ridley Scott's Exodus, Gods and Kings, more likely, my hunch for most of you, DreamWorks, Prince of, that's the, that's the one that's uh, echoing a little bit, Prince of Egypt. And it would mean that most of us will probably be at least a little bit familiar with some of the big events of the book already. So you, you'll know about the burning bush, I reckon. You'll know about something about the 10 plagues, some of you, the Passover, parting of the Red Sea, the giving of the 10 commandments, all of that happens before we get to, or by chapter 20. Gripping stuff, but Exodus is way more than just gripping, uh, gripping story. It's history that is told for a reason. History written by God so that we can know God. That's what the book of Exodus is. And that idea of knowing the Lord, we're going to see is the main theme of the whole book. And when it talks about knowing God, it doesn't mean knowing ab about him, facts about him, but about knowing him personally, about relating to him properly, and living rightly before him. Uh, the distinction between knowing about someone and knowing someone is one we're all very familiar with. The, the internet can tell you that Taylor Swift was born. Who's the biggest Swifty? Who, Rob, you probably know the answer to this. What, when's, her, when's Taylor Swift's birthday? Anyone? <laughs> Just making it up. December the 13th, 1989. Her favorite dessert? Cheesecake. And she has double-jointed elbows. Weirdly enough, uh, the internet can tell you. But obviously, you can discover all of that stuff online. And yet it doesn't mean that you know her personally. She's not your friend, even if you follow her on Instagram. I'm afraid she cares very little as long as you buy her music. I'm sure she loves you, really. Uh, likewise, though, people can possess a vast amount of information about God. Maybe you studied stuff about him in uh, religious education of one kind or another at school. Maybe you were taken along to church growing up. But what God wants for us is that next step, which is that he wants us to know him personally. Uh, he could have just sat up in heaven uh, behind some big pearly gates somewhere and kept himself hidden from us. But what he's doing in Exodus is revealing himself truly so that we can relate to him properly. He's revealing himself truly so that we can relate to him properly. And the more you know about the God that we're talking about, the more that should blow us away this evening, that he would want to know you, 
that he would want to name me. We're talking about the one who is the, the uncreated creator of everything. Uh, about one who is unchanging and perfect in love and justice and truth and power and holiness and goodness. That awesome God has gone to enormous lengths here in Exodus and supremely in his son Jesus to give you and me the chance to know him and to live in a real relationship with him. Uh, I was reflecting, I've been a Christian for over 30 years. I can honestly say that knowing God has enriched my life in ways that I cannot even begin to describe. Think of the meaning, the purpose, the peace, the freedom, the forgiveness, the hope, as was mentioned earlier, that he's given to me. And all of that and more is on the table as we come to read Exodus together these next few months. What we get in chapters one and two is a, we're doing a bird's eye view of chapters one and two, really, and they are an overture, those two chapters, an introduction together pretty much that introduce us to three big themes that will dominate most of the rest of the book. So tonight's pretty introductory and the themes are there on the sheet and the first is conflict, the Lord is opposed by man. And as we dive here into chapter one, we find a story that's been replayed many times in history. You've got an, an immigrant people who are living in a foreign land. They're multiplying rapidly and they're facing persecution. But what is going on is more than just a familiar story being told again. Rather, it's the continuation of God's story and his dealings with the world. And Exodus is the second five books at the start of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Together, they're called the Pentateuch, and a bit like the, the Harry Potter books or Narnia or something, they're all self-contained, but they, are, they go together to form the early history of the people of God. And that's explicit in the text. Um, in the Hebrew, it's not here in the English, but in the Hebrew, the very first word of, of the book of Exodus is and. So we're dealing with a sequel, the continuation of the story, and the way that the story starts deliberately points us back. So we're meant to pay particular attention to this guy, Jacob. He's mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 1. He's mentioned again in verse 5. He's mentioned again at the end of chapter 2. And Jacob was the grandson of Abraham, the father of the Israelite nation. He was the heir to the promises that God had made to him. And one promise in particular is in view here. The promise that God would give to Abraham and then to, to Jacob. As many descendants as there are stars in the sky or grains of sand on the seashore. It was a promise from back in Genesis 12 and 15. And here at the start of Exodus, verse 5 says, if you glance down, that there are 70 of them. But then in, in verse 7, babies start appearing with rabbit-like regularity. And we are meant to think this is God's good purposes and promises being fulfilled before our eyes. And that's doubly so because when you glance down at verse 7 this time, the specific wording, back in Genesis 1, some of you have been studying this week, God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful 
and multiply and fill the land. And then all of those words are used here to show us that this baby boom isn't just a a random historical detail, but is the fulfillment of God's purposes in creation and his particular covenant promises to his people as well. So the promises of the covenant, the purpose of creation going together, and that's what these babies signify. And that helps us then to see the behavior of Egypt's new king for what it really is. Uh, We meet him in verse 8, and almost immediately he launches a campaign of terror against the people of Israel. It comes in four desperate stages. Stage one of the cunning plan in verse 11 to, as you read it, afflict the people of Israel with forced labor and heavy burdens. Um, that they didn't do their fertility any harm. Verse 12 says, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And so now the Egyptians are in dread of them. Cue stage two in verse 13. So they ruthlessly, and that becomes a word, made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their life bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Still not enough for Pharaoh. So in verse 15 to 21, he decides that murder is the way to go. And he tells these midwives that baby girls are allowed to live, but if an Israelite has a baby boy, he's to be killed at birth. You've got to love the courage of two of the Hebrew midwives there, Shifra and Pur. Don't you love that history remembers the names of these otherwise really pretty unimportant in the grand scheme of thing women? Because verse 17, what what better could be said of anyone? They feared God. And so they didn't do as the king of Egypt commanded, but they let the male children live. And that then prompts, skipping over it, Pharaoh's fourth and final tactic in verse 22. is nothing short of genocide, is it really? He decides, well, we'll, go, we'll bypass the midwives now. And he tells the whole nation, if anyone in the nation comes across a Hebrew son, you've got to drown him in the river. By any standard, then, Pharaoh, this king, was an insecure and a murderous tyrant. But in the light of the Genesis backstory, we can see that he's more than that. Our writer is wanting us to think of him as a king who stands in opposition to both the creative and the redemptive purposes of God. There's going to be a fight between the two of them. One writer says, this is not a battle of Israel versus Pharaoh, or even of Moses versus Pharaoh, but of God versus Pharaoh. And so this chapter one is like the ring announcement before a, a boxing match. And in the red corner, you've got Pharaoh, the mighty king of the most powerful nation on earth at the time. And in the blue corner, you've got Jacob's promise-making God. And as the book starts, Jacob's God looks pretty weak. He's got 70 followers, and they're living as slaves in a foreign land. But even so, we can begin to tell who's going to win. Because Pharaoh lives in a big palace and has a big army. 
But for all of that power, he can't even get a few babies killed. And in fact, verse 22 hints at a terrible irony because while here Pharaoh is trying to drown God's people, the knockout blow in this fight will come in 14 chapters' time when Pharaoh's army is drowned, same word, in the Red Sea. The big lesson then of chapter 1 is that even though the superpowers of the world might stand against God, they will never win because he rules and his purposes always stand. In our own day, God's purposes aren't about the increase of the population of one nation, but about the growth of his church. Jesus said, I will build my church. And we're being told tonight that if God's purpose is to build his church, then not even the gates of hell will be able to stand against him. The anti-God powers of our day aren't just nation states, though some may be. They're ideologies like uh, secularism, they're false religions like Islam. Uh, we know that uh, the media loves to write God's obituary. We know that politicians love to legislate against God's values. We know that comedians love to mock him. But even when it looks like those powers are in the ascendancy, still their opposition to God is futile. In fact, God can throw back his head and laugh in the face of all of his opponents because he knows that however weak he seems in any generation, his purposes never fail. Sometimes wonder what would make anybody think that we could try and defy almighty God and think we might win. The first big theme of Exodus then is conflict. We're going to see it played out in the first 15 chapters especially. The Lord is opposed by man, but his purposes will triumph. Second big theme we'll see played out is redemption. The Lord will save through his rescuer. And as chapter 2 starts, we zoom in on this one baby in particular. The situation's almost uh, comical. Pharaoh wants this powerless baby dead, but in the event, his plan is undone by his own daughter when she ends up paying the baby's mum to raise her own Hebrew son, at, ironically, at Pharaoh's expense. And so it's another little illustration of Pharaoh's impotence, but there's more going on, because right from the word go, the clues are there that this baby is being marked out for greatness. So first in verse 1, we're told that he's born into what will become the, the priestly line of Levi. That seems to be emphasized twice. Uh, then in verse 2, he's described as a fine child. Um, that fine word is often translated good in the Bible, like when God in Genesis 1 saw that his creation was good. So we're not quite sure how it's going to happen yet, but it's looking as though somehow this baby is going to stand with the the good purposes of God over and against Pharaoh and his wicked purposes. And as we read on, this baby Moses is presented as a picture of God's salvation in a couple of slightly different ways. Uh, first, he's a reminder of God's past salvation of 
his people. Take a look at verse 3 with me. When Moses' mum could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Um, the word for basket there is the same as the word translated ark uh, 26 times back in Genesis. This is the only other place that the word is used in the, in the Hebrew Bible. So that's deliberate. You've got Noah's ark, and now you've got Moses' ark. And as is the fact that both arks are made of, uh, coated with bitumen and used by God to save his people when others are drowning. So we're meant to be thinking as we read that Moses is a bit like a new Noah. And we don't have any details yet, but just as God's dealings with Noah marked the, the beginning of a new chapter in his dealings with the world, so this baby is going to be something new. We're wondering, could this baby be the way that God is going to act to save his people from slavery? And that suspicion then grows in the second half of the chapter, where instead of pointing back to that past salvation, Moses now begins to point forward to what's to come in the rest of the book. So by verse 11, Moses is a grown-up, and he's seeing the burdens of his native people firsthand. And he comes across a scene that's like a, in miniature, a, a microcosm of the, the big picture of what's going on. Here is an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And it must have been happening every day somewhere in Egypt, but Moses was so troubled by it that, verse 12, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian, killing him, and hid him in the sand. And now we're a bit confused. It all looks a bit dodgy, doesn't it? If Moses is a hero, why is he killing someone? But the, the table on the back of the sheet shows that the, there's more going on than meets the eye. Once again, there's a parallel. And the way that the text presents it is that what Moses does for this one Israelite slave is a match or a preview for what God will do for the whole nation later in the book. Deliberate words are used and repeated to tell us that the two events are parallel. So they both see the affliction of God's people, and in response, they strike down the Egyptian oppressor. Same story of the next little incident over the page in verse 16. This time, Moses finds himself watching some shepherds drive away the daughters of the priests of Midian from a well. So in verse 18, 17, he saves them and he waters their flock, and when they get home, they tell their dad rule about a man who delivered them. And those three verbs are important. Later in the book, God saves and delivers the nation, and then God provides them with water in the wilderness. And you wouldn't probably spot all of that the first time we read through Exodus, any of us, but as you read it again and again, you, you notice that the choice of words is no accident. And the reason that we're told about these incidents from Moses' life is to give us a sneak preview of what's going to come later in the book. So Exodus starts with God's people oppressed and facing extinction. And the only way for them to survive, the only way for God's purposes to be fulfilled, will be if he delivers them. And the only way he can do that, as we'll see, is if he destroys those who are oppressing them. 
And chapter 2 is suggesting that that's exactly what God is going to do. And that somehow he's going to work through Moses to do it. We'll see loads more of how that unfolds as we read on. But for now, let's go a step further and see that as well as providing a preview of the redemption of Israel, Moses here also points ahead to an even greater rescue mission. Because we can all think of a, of a different baby who would be born hundreds of years later into another family that was descended from Abraham. And like Moses, he'd be born under the regime of another tyrannical king, Herod, who was so insecure that he too decided that he wanted to kill every male child in the land. But then that little baby would be saved miraculously from the clutches of the king, and he would grow up to be a rescuer through whom God would destroy his enemies and deliver his people. The angel said, give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And so as we read and as we think ahead to Jesus, it means that we're in, as we come to the book of Exodus, and we'll need to remember this, we're in a, a different position to the people of God in Exodus 2. If you're here this evening, you've trusted in Jesus, if you know him personally, well, we find them still groaning in slavery and just having to trust that God will one day deliver them. We can remember tonight that we're no longer slaves. Uh, that's the position that we would all be in by nature. Jesus says everyone who sins is a slave to sin. He says apart from him we all live under the reign of death and even the devil. But we'll have lots of chance this term to think about how when Jesus died and rose again, he did it to redeem us and to set us free and to bring us into his kingdom. He said, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Paul said, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. And the Christian person is no longer a slave uh, to sin. And for us, death has lost its sting. And in Christ, we are free to be the people that we're made to be. So that even though our emotions go up and down as Christians, however we feel, we will never be less than God's redeemed people. We are those who have already been set free so that we might serve him. And every time we talk about Moses and his rescue and the rescue of the people of Israel in, in Exodus, we're going to spend this term stopping and giving thanks to God for Jesus and his ultimate rescue of all who trust in him. And that brings us to our final lesson. We've had conflict, we've had redemption, and now we've got providence. The Lord is for his people. Uh, put yourself for a moment in the, the shoes of an average Israelite at the time of Exodus 1 and 2. Uh, maybe you've been taught as a child about God's wonderful promises. You've been taught that God has promised that even though there's only a few dozen of you, God is going to make you into a great nation. And he's going to bless you richly and give you your own land to live in 
and all of the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you. And then as you as your slave master kicks you out of bed every day, and as hunger eats away at your insides, and as bruises cover more and more of your body, my hunch is your promise-making God seems a very long way away. And then as the years go by and the brutality increases, trusting God in that situation would seem not only hard but stupid. Why would anyone want to believe in an absentee God? But the last few verses of chapter 2 change everything. Let's read from verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Uh, When it says that God remembered his covenant, it's not saying that he'd temporarily forgotten it, but that now, as his people pray and as they cry out to him, He resolves to act in a new way to honor the promises that he'd made. And we'll need to take our time and enjoy reading what God does next in the coming chapters. As he reveals himself as the mighty Lord who saves people so that they can serve him. But hit fast forward on the history of the people of Israel and as the centuries pass... And as they read over this book, there would be many more dark times in the history of God's people. And still for us today as Christians, there can be days when we struggle to see God's hand at work in the world. Whether we're thinking on a global scale or in our own hearts and lives, things happen that that baffle us. Sometimes we can't even begin to see what's going on in our life or what's going on in the world might be a part of the the plan and the good purpose of the the powerful and promise-making God. Think of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who suffer horribly for their faith. People in northern India being turfed out of their homes. Indonesia, northern Nigeria, North Korea. Life for God's people in those lands must feel an awful lot like Exodus 1 and 2. But then much closer to home, even if the opposition we face isn't on that scale, every single Christian I know, and I don't think that's an exaggeration, I think every single Christian I know has had an occasion to doubt whether God really is in control of our circumstances and whether God really is on our side. Uh, Health issues, anxiety, depression, unemployment, marriage, relationship troubles, family strife. I've no doubt that some here tonight have wondered even in the last week Can I really trust God? 
with what's going on in my life. Uh, look with me then at the comfort there is in the four actions ascribed to God in verses 24 and 25. Do you see them there? God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. Put those four verbs together. They take us to the, the behind-the-scenes faithfulness of our mighty Lord. They remind us that God is for us and that God is good. And I want to press home to all of us, whatever we're going through, that he sees our pain, he hears our groaning, and he knows, and he will never forget us. And even when we can't see it, he is still at work in our lives and in the world to achieve his good and eternal purposes. And so the verse we're going to end with tonight comes from Romans 8. It's a good place for us to draw to a close. Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good according to his purposes. He doesn't say some things work together for good and some are beyond him. And he doesn't say that all things work together for good or for real. But that the living God has pledged to run the universe in such a way that every single thing that ever befalls us will be used by him for the good of those who love him. Namely, that we will be made more like his son, Jesus, through them. It's an amazing promise. And the truths that we learn in Exodus about the victory of God, the fact that he's the real king who ever opposes him, and about the love of God, that he's the redeeming king who sent his son, Jesus, to die for us feed into our confidence that he is the, provident, the king of providence, the Lord who is for us. It takes a lifetime of ups and downs to learn to lean on that promise. And we're all still students in it. There may be stuff going on in your life that you need particular help processing and praying about. And people here, those sitting around you, would love to point you back to God but it is a wonderful truth to cling on to in the darkest of days. Three truths then that uh, we're learning about God and we need to ask him to write them on our heart this semester as we continue this journey through Exodus. It's one about conflict or maybe better victory, that the world opposes God, but it does so in vain. He's the God of glorious triumph, redemption. He loves his people. And in Jesus, he has saved us. And his providential care, he's for us, he sees, he hears, and he knows. Let's pray together.
We've covered a lot of ground, but maybe just take a moment to reflect and think about if there's one thing you want to say to God, one thing you want to bring before him, a particular situation in which you know that you need his help to trust him. And so you want to ask him to help you by his spirit. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good according to his purposes. And so, Sovereign Lord, we want to thank you that in this great and ancient book, you reveal yourself truly so that we can relate to you properly. Thank you for what you've reminded us even tonight, and you're going to teach us time and again this term about your power, your sovereign rule over the world, your victory, your ultimate triumph. Thank you for the confidence it gives us that evil will not win, that death will not win, the devil will not win, but that you are the conqueror. Thank you for what it reminds us about your plan to redeem your people, to save through your appointed rescuer. Thank you that Jesus has come and gave his life as a ransom for many that we might be forgiven and redeemed. And thank you that you are good to us. In the happy days of our life and in the harder days, that you promise to work through all things for our good. Thanks for showing us how you could do that, even through horrible events for your people in Exodus. And help us to trust that you do it still today. So work in us this term, we pray. Help us to make it a priority to be here. Help us to have open hearts when we come. Teach us more about you. So that we can not just know stuff about you, but know you and walk through life with you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close.